2022 MotoGP track action has already begun as we're recording this. Some mechanics at Sepang are probably getting up around about now for the shakedown test to continue. All the factories are out there already. And then this weekend is the first proper preseason test of the season. You're listening to the Race MotoGP podcast. Toby Moody is uh, unavailable this week. So this is Matt Beer in Micacalio mode again, standing in for at least this episode. Joining me are Simon Patterson and Val Harinci. Simon, I'm expecting any second to hop into a van and drive to Kuala Lumpur from Ireland, which I'm sure is easily doable. How are you? It's easier to do than flying there is at this moment <laughs> in time. <laughs> I've, I've now booked 14 different flights for this trip, of which six have been cancelled. Oh, wow. So uh, welcome to traveling in Southeast Asia in COVID times. Hopefully we do. Well, at least this year, there's not any question mark. I'm crossing my fingers as I say that over how many tests we'll have, where you'll go afterwards. You, you plan with a little bit more confidence than for the last yeah, couple of years. It. And Val, we're not letting you out of your Moscow basement just yet. But before this started recording, we did talk about getting you to some races in person this year. So hopefully that can happen as well. How are you? I'm pretty good. Just, you know, amused by you comparing yourself to Mika Kalia rather than Danny Pedrosa, recently described by Pit Byer as the greatest test rider in MotoGP. Guess you you figured that was too much of a stretch to compare yourself to, so you went with Calio, who is quite a bit underrated, but also just a an interesting choice. Well, when I first stood in on this podcast, I said I was going to be like Christoph Ponson, but I've now I've now made three appearances, which just destroys what he was allowed to do, doesn't it? So I had to upgrade somehow, and I thought, was it seventeen that Calio made the the wild cards where he was basically more impressive than both yeah. Paul and yeah Smith. at the Red Bull that, are, you, are you trying to hint that that's no, what's happening I, I just thought who's Matt, a third rider who's quite old and went with someone uh, uh, he's lovely that was my logic he's great I'm a bit of a Calio fan actually yeah, his, his, his Ducati stint on, on you know, he's still in the factory ride I think is underrated yeah. but. what if, if like you know just speaking to him in person it's like what if what if Kimi Raikkonen didn't actively dislike you? It's sort of that kind of vibe. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. Someone, uh, I tweeted earlier to say that Yamaha had announced that uh, Cal Crutchlow was remaining with them as a test rider for 2022 and 2023. And David Goldman, our photographer, replied to me to say he isn't on track today at the shakedown test in Sepang. And uh, Frank Vink, the, the Eurosport Netherlands commentator, replied to say, yeah, he's probably out looking for Pitt Bayer after Pitt said that me, that Danny Pedrosa was the greatest test rider in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Which is quite a crutch low. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. So when, by the time you get out there, Simon, the actual proper test will begin two days at Sepang followed by three at Mandalika afterwards now we've had two years of very limited bike development through COVID times so this is quite a potentially quite a big reset with them all having had chance to actually develop their bikes and engines properly over the winter and there's quite a lot riding on this test for a few teams isn't there so who in particular are you really looking forward to a seeing their bike on track and b hearing from afterwards to see what the mood's like among the riders and teams well like you said, there's a couple of big changes coming that we know about. Um, obviously, we've we've all seen the pictures of the new Honda RC213V that looks really, really different. Um, we we know that they've been working on a on something major, but at the end of the day, they have Mark Marquez riding for them, so it doesn't really matter how good or bad the bike is. Uh, similarly, we know that Fabio Quartararo has has kind of given a list of demands to Yamaha about what they need from the new bike, but he said the same thing last year and he still won the championship. So for me, the one that we're really, really looking at to see the step that's been made is Suzuki, because I think how good the new GSX-RR is depends where uh, Juan Mir rides in 2023, let alone whether or not he can fight for the championship in 22 first. So I think that there's probably more riding on the new Suzuki than there is on any other manufacturer's bikes in terms of they've got two riders one of them is the world champion for them. And whether or not they keep him depends on what sort of a job they've done over winter. No one else's engineers has that sort of pressure on their shoulders. Um, so, yeah, for me, it's all about what what's under the skin of the new blue bike. So, Val, this is your first chance of the night to disagree with Simon. Who, who are you? Who do you think has got most riding on this test? Uh, most riding is a... That's a tough one to answer because ultimately there have been so many times that we show up to Qatar for the for the race even after a Qatar test and it turns out that everything that came out of the test was basically 
borderline nonsense or even going from Qatar to whatever's next fortunately yeah and when the venues are Sepang which is notoriously a bit hard to read into and Mandalika which nobody knows much of anything about apart from the World Superbike paddock I don't, I don't know who has the most riding on it but I do think it's probably the one that's most interesting is Honda I'd say just because you want to hear what the riders think of the new bike and you want to see how baseline competitive they are and how how much they're crashing to to get to those lap times the one i want to see in action in moving pictures because we've already seen stale pictures but in moving pictures on track is obviously the new grashini ducati because that's an absurdly just absurdly gorgeous machine just looks wonderful uh but yeah not not because there's like the performance is super interesting although it is it is quite curious to see how strong an Bastianini is going to be on that beautiful thing and whether what we saw from Bigian Antonio in, in Jerez is legit, but more is just such a pretty bike. Great. So I, th- I think what we've learned is that Val has a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Subtle hints. There is, you know what? Uh, if, if, if the Tech 3 livery wasn't, was new this season, then you'd sort of have a, and obviously the Suzuki's nice. The, you know, they're all reasonably nice, but yeah, Agrashini something special for this year. Well, you know, we've got a few launches to come yet, so we might get a massive shock by the the shade of blue from Suzuki or uh, Pramac throwing us a curveball. Or no, you're you're absolutely right. I think that is Grissini. Or Repsol Honda moving a sticker five millimeters up. <laughs> if you look back fifteen odd years, there was a bit that was slightly more black. You know, it's, it has it has uh, it has. If evolved. you look back, if you look back twenty years, the the what is now dark was turquoise, and it looked far better. Yeah, in my opinion, yeah, like yeah. that's that should be the Repsol colors, but there you go. Let's let's stick with Honda because in in a way, preseason testing two years ago was to, to me the first time of Honda slightly losing the plot a little bit. I remember that test before the season that began six months later in the end, where they were throwing different specs of bodywork at the bike frantically, and Marquez was riding around in this double livery lash up as they tried to get an aero package at the very last minute. So. Yeah, like you say, they have got Marquez, so they have got that kind of get-out-of-jail card. We've got a rider who can ride anything. But from from the hints we were getting at the end of last season around the Hareth test, is Honda likely to be in better technical shape as well this year, or is it going to be relying on its on its genius being fit? I think there's probably something better coming. Um, they've done a lot of work, which hints at, you know, they haven't massively redesigned their bike for nothing. Um, I'm sure that whenever they've put that much effort into it, there's there's something coming that's worth having. Uh, but then simply beyond that, it's also the end of a two-year rule freeze because of COVID. So there's going to be a more powerful engine. Um, the en- you know, they're going to have refined that, hopefully not just um, made it more powerful, but made it a bit more manageable because that's what the riders actually want. And then, you know, with regards to the aerodynamics, like you say, Matt, the, the aero package that they have is something they cobbled together on the last night of the last test in Qatar, directly before the start of the season, basically based on input from one circuit because they'd gone in the opposite direction with a a, a wing setup that just wasn't working for all the rest of testing. And then what happened was they started the season with that aero package that was basically the, the one from the year before that they'd not really managed to refine and then the rules froze all aerodynamic development for two years so that's a three-year-old wing package that they've got on so um yeah i think they desperately need something in that area and it doesn't surprise me that the front of the bike in particular looks a lot different from the bike that we've been used to seeing for those few years you know it almost looks like a like a yamaha now with that big central air intake on the bike that uh, Stefan Brattle's been riding last week in Hareth. So there there has been real work done there. There's been real change, at least from what we see in the pictures. Um, and the real tell of how much work they've done, I think, will be not the comments of Marquez, but the comments of Paul Espigaro, because he's the one that went into winter with a bit of a Honda shopping list, Whereas Mark just, you know, well, we, we didn't even get a chance to talk to Mark about testing, did we? Because he had that injury. He missed the last two rounds. He missed the uh, the one last test at the end of the year. He, he'll just turn up and ride whatever they give him. But it's Paul that will lead the development to an extent. Almost that sort of Cal Crutchlow role from like 2018 of I'm not as good as him. So give me what I want and he'll be able to ride it. 
And of course, the other question over Honda as well is exactly what shape Marquez is in. But since we last discussed Marquez, Val, there's been actually probably the most encouraging news about Marquez's fitness in, in a couple of years, if, if anything. Well, yes, but, you know, encouraging. I mean, the bar's low for that, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but also, you know, encouraging in terms of the, it sounds like the diplopias, uh, well, gone, basically. We'll see under the stress of a proper MotoGP testing day and then a MotoGP race after that. But it sounds like he, he's completely clean sheet of health in that regard. But the other questions that were still there at the end of 2021, I mean, they're they're still there. They've just been pushed back a few months. And those, those few months of relative inaction add another question mark. But yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's an encouraging encouraging situation and obviously what everyone wants is to see mark at a hundred percent basically from the start because that's you know that's the show we deserve right now as MotoGP fans given the what we got the last two years as entertaining as that was missed that bit and now we we quite like that bit back yeah it's been it's been a painful missing part of the storyline hasn't it so many times over the last two years when a honda has gone well and I've had I've been able to choose a Repsol Honda as a lead picture on the website, I've, and it's felt novel. That's been that's been bizarre. Went throughout my whole career so far. You've been looking for, for an excuse to run a different bike for for variety, but it's a big step from where Honda and, and Marquez have been. But and we'll know more by the te- obviously by the time the test is over. But do you two see them as going into this season aiming for a championship again, or going into this season just hoping to be closer than last year? Phew. If you're Mark and you're starting from the first race, I don't, I don't really see how he can aim for anything else other than the championship. I mean, he's not going to outright say it because he has the very plausible and an excuse that you, well, it's not an excuse, but a line of reasoning that you're going to use if you have the possibility to use, which is, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to work. Leave me alone. Stop asking, which is probably what we're going to hear after the very first day of testing. It's like, He's probably going to do fine, but then he's going to be like, I still don't know how the shoulder is in race trim. I still don't know how it is on various tracks, etc., etc., which will be true. But uh, whatever it is, just going off that 20, 2021 form when he did get into something resembling proper fitness, that was, that was good enough to fight for the title. And he's not good enough to run away with it. If he's made a step forward, then that's on the table too. But, just, you know, I think, yeah, I think they have to target the title. I, I, Mark Marcus doesn't enter a season from the first race and go. I'll, we'll see how it goes. He will go. That, he will say that to the media, but that's just not. Nobody should buy that. I won't buy that. At the end of the day, if we take an injured Mark Marquez as seventy-five, eighty percent of twenty nineteen Mark Marquez, then he starts the season with as much a chance as Quadraro, as Mira, as Bagnaya. He is in that group, even on you know even a diminished Mark Marquez based on what we've seen in the past. So yeah, assuming that he is closer than that to full fitness, I think it's still hard to to even really say that he's not the championship favorite if testing goes well and and he's in a reasonable shape. He doesn't even have to be in fantastic shape because he started nineteen not in fantastic shape after shoulder surgery over the winter and like. This is the biggest domination in championship history. I think it's the the biggest gap uh, from first to second in terms of championship points ever. So if he can get back, you know, even even 90% of that, it's hard to count him out. Of course, the person who gave him perhaps the hardest time for a lot of 2019 is the person who's now reigning champion. Um, and we've been denied this Quattararo Marquez kind of peak battle for these these two years where Fabio was was rising and, and Mark just effectively wasn't there most of the time. So when we last heard from Fabio Quattararo, it was after the Jerez test. And rather than kind of basking in a championship glow, he was he was fairly grumbly, I think is is an accurate description about what, what Yamaha had offered at that test. So Simon, what was what was Quattararo's shopping list at the end of 2021? And will Yamaha have had the opportunity to do much about giving him what he needs um, in time for these tests? Well, the problem is his shopping list was more par. He wants the bike to be faster. 
but it's not just as simple as bringing an engine that's a little bit faster, plugging it into the bike and expecting everything else still to work the same way, the bike still to go around corners the same way, you know, all of that. It, it is obviously within Yamaha's remit to build him a bike that's more powerful because we know how incredibly bulletproof their engines are. Um, after the, the valve debacle of 2020 that saw uh, Franco Morbidelli run one of their engines for double its life expectancy. So we know they can push the limits a little bit on on terms of engine development and, and what sort of output they create. But it's whether or not they fundamentally want to. Um, and I think what we might see at this test is him grumbling that the new bike isn't quite as fast as he wants it to be but is still a little bit faster and then proceeding to spend four days working on refining what they've been given with electronics. Because it's also not that long ago that, uh, you know, Maverick Vinales and Valentino Rossi were complaining about the Yamaha being uh, too, too peaky on acceleration, about it spinning the rear tire coming out of corners every time because they tried to make it more powerful and it didn't, you know, in the end it hurt them more than it helped them. So I, I think Yamaha will be quite conservative about how they give Quartararo what he wants. And I think maybe the biggest job from the test will be convincing him to be happy with what they have given him rather than, uh, you know, delivering everything he's asked for. This is, now this is purely conjecture, but I think this is the one feud, and I'm doing massive air quotes here. I think this is the one feud that's not, not really going to last because I, I still suspect that Fabio's, grumpiness at the end of 20, 2021 was mostly about just being a bit spooked by what he saw from the Ducatis more than anything. And, you know, having had a, first of all, having checked off a title from a bucket list already has to be invigorating. It has to, you know, it has to relax you a little bit. Whatever happens from now on, you are a MotoGP champion forever. That will never change. And that, that should help. And he spent a whole winter sort of, aware of that obviously but then also just you know time heals all wounds he'll return to a bike that he he likes to ride and that's yeah it's not never going to be the most powerful machine yeah it's probably he's probably in for an uncomfortable moment or two or many of having six Ducatis around him on the on the grid and all of them getting to turn one ahead of him that's just you know it's that's life in MotoGP as a Yamaha rider uh I think, yeah, I think he'll live with it. Also, because there's just there's no point being too grumpy about it. But where else are you going to go? You know. Plus, I, th- I think all of the Ducati performances that really spooked him at the end of last year were they were more qualifying performances than race performances, and, and that's something that Ducati have the ability to just turn up the wick on because their bike is so fast in a straight line that they just add more fuel and it goes quicker. And Yamaha can't really do that without getting into those issues with acceleration and how it comes out of the corner and, and fuel efficiency getting to the end of the race. So it was maybe an easier, that was an area where Ducati could improve within the restrictions imposed. But it's not something that Yamaha can counter because of the restrictions, because they can't change their engine, because they can't change their aerodynamics. Um, Ducati have a bit more flexibility there. So if the new bike is good enough for him to go out and do a flying lap on it. I think he'll leave testing happy. And if he can still qualify and pole every week, he knows that then he has the tools he needs to fight the Ducatis. So um, yeah, it's 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 not one to judge on speed trap times alone. That's for sure. There was a there was a sort of a an underlying problem to how Cartier's season ended in that after he got five poles in a row, I think he didn't get another pole for the rest of the season or something like that. And you know that's that's gotta smart for for a guy who honestly might well be on course to ending up one of the greatest qualifiers MotoGP has ever seen or something like that. This stats currently as a qualifier they are they are fantastic. He is so very good over one lap, but it also like obviously the Ducatis clearly have something extra there going by end of twenty twenty one. That's probably unlikely to change, and there's going to be more Ducatis go- good over one lap. I suspect. I imagine that Bastianini and Marini will both be transformed into consistent Q two threats with their with their upgrades, but you know it's it's a problem, and you don't want them starting ahead of you, and they're they're hard to pass. Fabio can do it; he's one of the few riders on the grid who seem pretty pretty good at doing it. Uh, but it's you know he's not going to have to 
I think, really sweat making Q2 that much. He still got, he has too much one lap talent to really. I think the big issue there is for the guys who are borderline, which again, I think brings us to the Suzuki's. If I'm the Suzuki's, I'm more than a little bit worried that even if we've made one lap improvements, the extra influx of Ducatis that are going to be monopolizing Q2 spots every weekend is going to cause headaches. I think Fabio is going to be okay, but you never know. Also, because Franco's back and Franco's himself is a really good qualifier, so that's another potential problem. I'll see. But you know, Yamaha's complaining about not being fast enough, uh, and then starting from far up the grid and dominating the race to lead from start to finish has been a Yamaha trait since time immemorial. It's what they do. It was Jorge Lorenzo's, you know, recipe for success there. So they're not going to change their entire DNA because Fabio wants the bike to be faster. Um, and maybe it's the fact that he's 22 and impetuous and has just won a championship and thinks that he is the most important person that has ever been at Yamaha, but they won't say it that way and they won't concede those demands just because he's demanding them. It is a huge change for Yamaha to not have a rider of that stature of a, of a Rossi or a Lorenzo on, on in either one of its team's garages this year. I mean, how much sway does, does Quartararo have in terms of how the team see him, Simon? Is it, it, does he have, I'm sure he has enough respect, but this is a team that's probably had, that's had some very vocal riders in its, in its ranks for 15 odd years now. It, it was quite telling last year that the main reason that Maverick Vinales wanted Cal Crutchlow to come and test the bike was so that there was someone allowed to shout at the Japanese engineers so that they'd listen to him. Uh, I think that kind of <laughs> says quite a bit about how the um, the the racers are viewed within the team. That they are exactly like you said. They're not the not the huge influential force that Valentino Rossi was or that Jorge Lorenzo was. And I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the much in the way that Honda are hopefully using Paul uh, as kind of the benchmark for development. I'd like to think that Yamaha are doing the same with Crutchlow and with Andrea Davizioso and kind of relying on those old experienced guys to lead the bike in a sensible direction rather than just giving Fabio whatever he wants. So Val, you talked a second ago about Suzuki being a team that needs to be nervous about a, a massive influx of top spec Ducatis. Now we've talked about Yamaha and whether it can bring what Quattararo needs. Suzuki's not a manufacturer with the resources of Yamaha or Honda. You know, what, what is Mir hoping for at the moment? And is there any chance of him getting it when he gets on that bike this weekend? He got some of what he wanted for towards the end of last year, which was the, the Raihide device obviously being worked on and and being added. But still the, the, the year sort of ended on a on a sourish note in terms of in terms of racing, because obviously after Valencia he was very pessimistic about the performance of his bike relative to the Ducatis, but then sort of a lot more optimistic in in the tests Suzuki might not have the resources of the others but I don't know they have sort of the the maybe more boldness and maybe more honestly maybe even more reputation in terms of really being able to find something when when they go looking uh they've been at work on this bike for a for a long time with their primary forces basically in, in, in some way, you could suspect that 2021 was, if not a write-off, then sort of a gamble that we'll be fine with the bike that won us 2020 and we'll focus on, on what comes next. Which, yeah, they were fine. They weren't great, but they were they were okay. Season was, you know, one of their guys finished third. That's, that's good for a, a team of Suzuki size. But obviously, to keep Mir, you need, you need more. So, we'll see. I think it's... It's supposed to be a fairly a fairly major bit, and everything that we've heard from its initial track testing has been fairly positive, I think. But you just Suzuki isn't isn't really usually negative in testing. Like in testing, everything looks okay, even if the lap times aren't so good. They are usually pretty chirpy. Last season they were chirpy for the first half of the season, and then just the what they expected never really came in terms of pace. Yeah, I think. One thing to remember is that Suzuki, probably more than any other team, was hit quite hard with COVID uh, because they've got such a small race department and it was shut down for such a long time 
because Japan kind of went into quite a strict lockdown for quite a long time. It wasn't like Europe where people were, you know, coming and going or lockdowns were easing or, or, or toughening. So they, the Japanese manufacturers really seemed to get hit quite hard. And then on top of that, all their engineering staff had to come to Europe and got stuck in Europe. They weren't allowed to go back and forth. So that also punished them all through 20 and 21. But they have been working on the new bike for a long time. I think the first time we saw the, the new engine in a MotoGP bike was like, maybe april of last year it was super early whenever they, they first the 2022 yeah well, didn't they trial some 2022 stuff already in in pre-season in yeah Qatar they, it day, might even have been yeah the penultimate day yeah. or something like so, that or, yeah. so there's been there's been 2022 stuff kicking around for a long time mm. and and obviously you know sylvan Cantoli, i think has done more miles of race circuits than anyone else in the world this year uh, I saw a social media post just before we started a recording to say first day of Sepang testing, 66 laps. You know, so he is that and that's on a long circuit. So he is earning his keep. Um, he is very, in terms of riding style, is very similar to Mir. So part of the reason that they like having him is because if he says something is working, then it generally works really well for Mir as well. So um, yeah, the, there's a lot of good signs there. Um whether or not it comes all comes together you know hopefully um but the, the the big difficulty i think at suzuki more than anything else maybe is how far behind they are with things like the right height device because they are on like they're bringing model two of it here and ducati are on like version 18 that does everything automatically and you know they've got a big advantage on it and and it's gonna take suzuki time and money and resource to even catch up. So hopefully they've they've been looking all year at what everyone else is doing, um, which wouldn't surprise me. I, I had a few conversations with a few Suzuki people I know in the middle of last year um, about bits and pieces of, you know, around other people's ride height devices and, and they knew exactly what was fitted to every other bike on the grid. So they've been studying it. They've done their homework. So so maybe they can jump forward a few steps, um, sort of skip a few, a few of the hurdles on the route. We'll find out. Um, it's it's just super difficult to tell Suzuki. That's the thing. It feels really hard to assess their chances because they're so small. So here's a sort of, and this is this is going to be a bit of a risk because obviously these podcasts they're recorded and they need to be edited and they need to be proofed. So there's a time window there in which a press release might come out. But so far, there's no press release. Who is in charge of the Suzuki MotoGP team? No one. The testing's about to start. Yeah, we're going into another season with no team leader. They have a project leader for the bike who is running the team, and then everyone else in the team has a little bit more responsibility, but there's no there's no person to take the blame or the credit. There's still no Davide Brivio. And it's the just... difference is, compared to last year, is that they specifically outlined getting a person in as a goal at the end of last season, and said somebody was close, which I don't think anybody quite knows who that somebody was was supposed no, to be. There were names, but none of yeah. them ever materialized. The, the big difference, yeah. the big difference for me in last year and this year is that exactly like you said, uh, they all said they needed someone. And the reason, one of the reasons they needed someone is because they've got two writers with contracts to sign. Someone's got to sign new writers now. That That's the crunch point in all of this. You know, we're, we're on the cusp of we're on the cusp of the first test of the year. Traditionally, the last two times round, the day before the first test of the year is where Yamaha have announced their lineup for the following year, and Suzuki have no one to put pen to paper with them. Yeah, so there, there's a there's That's... a non-zero chance that when we are watching the Yamaha launch, suddenly we'll be informed of a of a contract extension. And with Suzuki, I think the Absolutely. chance is currently zero because. <laughs> Because who's been yeah. there to negotiate it? Exactly. I mean, exactly. maybe between the 66 laps, between the runs, Sylvan's popping down back to the garage and <laughs> sorting out all the, you know, mean, all the accounting and whatnot. But He's Suzuki Test Rider, Suzuki Stand-In Rider, Suzuki World Endurance Champion, BT Sport Pundit, Canal Plus Pundit. It wouldn't surprise me if he was doing a bit of team <laughs> management on the side as well. We'll, we'll uh, get to the Suzuki launch on Friday and the microphone will be empty at the front of the stage and Sylvan will just look at it and go, oh, all right there, and then just walk up and just, <laughs> take, just, just take it from there. Sylvan's got six kids. He'd be a perfect team manager. He doesn't agree with their personalities. <laughs> Wait, Sylvan has six kids? 
Six kids. Wow. It's <laughs> a lot of kids. I mean, listeners, you won't, you won't be aware that this podcast recording was delayed while my two kids managed to make a spectacular meal of getting to bed tonight. So <laughs> well done, Gintoli family, for functioning at all, ever. Good work. So um, that was a, yeah, Suzuki's a team that has no boss. Let's talk about uh, KTM, a team that has changed boss over the winter and one of the first to do a proper launch as well. Now, Crikey, we talk about Yamaha and Suzuki needing to find something over the winter. KTM, what an absolute mystery last season was. So you two both attended the virtual uh, briefings and, and launch and that sort of thing that they had. What was the vibe coming out of KTM and its riders last week, Simon? I, I genuinely think KTM might have already found what they're looking for. Because I think so many of last year's problems at KTM had nothing to do with the bike. I think that things inside that team last year just didn't work. Um, there's all sorts of stories about tensions and moods and you know, people not being happy. And if I were a manufacturer who had a very unhappy team and thought that that unhappiness was affecting my performance and I had to go and find someone to to fix that, one of the people that would be very high on my shopping list would be Francesco Godotti because of his reputation of what he's done at Pramac. He's, you know, the guy that has made a quasi-factory team still feel like a family. He They have good fun, they party, they laugh, they all go on holidays with each other, but they're still quite a serious affair. And I, I think given KTM's reputation for uh, being quite Teutonic, um, I think a little bit of Italian madness in the form of Godotti might go a long way to fixing their problems. Uh, and then from the team launch at the weekend, we spoke quite extensively with Pitt Bayer, uh, the head of motorsport at KTM, who, you know, he won 21 world championships with KTM last year across multiple disciplines. So he knows what's working and what's not working in all of his various teams. And and he essentially conceded that they've brought in uh, Guidotti as much of a psychologist as anything else, that they're replacing an engineer in the shape of Mike Leitner with a, a psychologist, with someone to bring out the best in the people they already have. Um, so I, I, it might take a little bit of time to kind of change the ethos and the mentality of people within the team and, and to get everything to where Guidotti wants it to be rather than where Leitner had it. But I think that has the potential to make more of a difference than uh, anything mechanically with the bike. And and even listening to the writer comments as well, you know, they were saying things like, oh, there's, there's still more to get from the bike we already have. We haven't taken the full potential from the 21 bike. And it all sounds like things were a bit lost there. So the, the, the number one thing, I think, um, we're not going to be asking the writers how the new bike feels, we're going to be asking them what the mood in the garage has been like to try and get a, a feel for where they are. It was also a big emphasis from all of the, well, from Byer specifically, I think, was that they really wanted to introduce a sort of separation of church and state where the church is the race team and the state is the test team. Don't look too hard into those designations. They're completely random. But yeah, uh, basically, KTM <laughs> riders have occasionally brought up the problem of having way too much to test during race weekends and otherwise. And I think this year, the idea is that they're finally going to really just have the test team do the brunt of that. And maybe at some point they'll, they'll add the tech three boys into the mix. That would make, make sense to me and have the, the race riders, focus on maximizing their weekends rather than maximizing the project which you know it's a smart idea it's you know it's it's what you want when you're at this stage of it, it you wouldn't have wanted that in 17 18 19 but it's it's what you want now uh they were they were a fair bit adrift last year I and mean, brad linder had a, a pretty good season generally but even his best races weren't quite enough to to drag the bike onto the podium. Oliveira's best races were, but there weren't a ton of them. They they have to figure out what happened there. They have to figure out how to get Bender more on that pace. Obviously, it'll help that he'll become a lot more familiar with the tracks, but because of the COVID weirdness, there's still going to be new tracks for Brad Bender, the MotoGP rider. Um, the MotoGP race winner. 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, I mean like new tracks that he knows from Moto Two and Moto Three, but not yeah, not Moto GP. Mm, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to feel because I, I'm fairly confident they'll be a lot better. But what that means in terms of like what results would actually make for a good season for KTM, I, I could not tell you. I have to, I have to see it to know how I feel about it. Which you know, I appreciate that's a completely useless sentiment for preseason preview podcast but that's it's just how it is with ktm there's been there's been too much oscillation recently i yeah the, the other reason i think that they needed that change of strategy is for the same reason that aprilia need to look at doing the same thing ktm have had a while where they've had a number one and a number two they had paul espagaro they had uh bradley smith on the other side of the garage paul was there to go fast bradley was there to do all the testing Aprilia have done the same thing for years with Alicia Spagaro and Bradley Smith. Um, but it's now got to the point where KTM have two young, hungry, proven race winners, both of whom will happily punch the other's grandmother to win another race. Uh, and they can't, there's no way you can have a happy garage there if one is getting parts that the other isn't on a regular basis. So um, I think if they want to secure Oliveira long term, which I, I think they want to do, and which they've already done with Binder, they they kind of need to keep them both a little bit happier than maybe they have in the past. And, and again, keeping people happy is where Guidotti should be able to do quite a good job. There's still a, a question of securing Oliveira long-term, which I, I think would be a good idea, but man, how does Raul Fernandez fit into all of that? Raul Fernandez, who's already been impressing in the in the shakedown, by the way, and who just, just looks really, really good, and who I... I don't see how you... I think Raul Fernandez has been pretty careful in making it clear that he's a KTM rider for this year, and then we will see. Um, KTM talks a lot about having four factory four factory seats, two at the factory factory team and two at the factory tech three team, I guess. But I don't know how many... Like, that might actually genuinely be the case in terms of packages, although last year it wasn't quite, but still, you know, the parity there is good, but Nobody's buying that. Remember how annoyed Miguel Oliveira was when, when Binder got the factory team seat over him, even when he was ready to pass it up, when he thought that, when he passed up the factory team graduation when Johannes Arker left, because he thought Mika Calio would, or somebody like that would get the seat, and then he saw Brad effectively promoted over him. If there was total parity between Tech 3 and the KTM works team, that would not matter in the least, but matter, matter it did. And it will matter going forward. Uh, I don't know how much longer Raul Fernandez is going to be okay being a satellite rider. Obviously, we'll have to see how he actually does in competitive surroundings in a MotoGP bike first. But it's already, because of how quickly the MotoGP rider market moves, it's already a thing you have to start thinking about, I think. I, I thought it was quite interesting, actually, how much emphasis Bayer put uh, at the team launch on how they're going to have four factory riders in two different color schemes, how the fastest KTM rider will get the newest stuff first, regardless of which team he's in, how they are sending more engineers this year to work with Tech 3 in the garage every weekend. It's almost like they were trying to lay the foundation for Miguel and Raul, you both need to be happy where you are. It's almost like they were they're kind of laying out that they want to keep both of them. Um, and they've got, I guess, six months, maybe max, to convince Fernandez that Tech 3 is factory-ish or factory enough for him. Um, the one benefit they have, of course, is that it's KTM Red Bull. And if they want to pay Tech 3 riders factory rages, they're more than capable of doing it, um, which is where there has traditionally been sort of the biggest disparity in the grid. But it's quite interesting that whenever you look at Ducati, who, who have kind of made that model work, right, where they've got two factory bikes in, in Primark that are pretty factory and in some cases do get new parts first. They pay pretty much all four of their guys, th those factory guys, Primark and the factory team, get relatively similar wages. Um, and I, I think that is kind of the, that's the model for KTM. And again, if there's someone who knows how to implement that model at KTM, it's the guy who basically built that model at Primark, Francesco Guidotti. So, you know, there are many reasons for Guidotti to be there. We've had Jorge Martin tell you, Simon, that the goal for 2023 is to be in factory red. 
the the factory team, so not yeah. not Pramac. As good yeah. as the the bike on Pramac is, it might well be the same freaking bike, but you want to be a factory rider. You yeah. yeah. Well, how the there's both they're both a stigma, and I'm honestly there can't be complete parity. I don't believe that this is not a customer racing championship. the The factory team is the factory team, but just you know, even at Pramac, where the bike is a proven race winner, you still you can't hold a hot talent there for a very long time. Sooner or later, you have to put up, or you have to effectively shut up by letting them go. Or uh, you can try the third option of just keeping them there and having them grow grumpy, but I don't think we've seen that. I can't imagine that'll be going on anywhere for a very long time. Still all very hypothetical, but I think a lot of people are really excited by how Raul's going in this shakedown and just generally in last season. So people are thinking. There's there's a lot of, I think, thinking already along those lines. Of course, the other thing is, too, Brad Binder has a KTM contract until the end of 2024, but we don't know if it says which team it's in. So that yeah, there's all sorts of options there that we, we don't know about and we'll never really know about, but there's there's room for everything to jiggle around, I think. That's the Red Bull F1 trick, isn't it? Exactly. Like you, you're, you're a Red Bull driver in Formula 1, but whether that means Red Bull or sister team Alpha Tauri, that's up to us. Entirely possible that KTM does it the, the same way, but we're not privy to, to the contract, obviously. So uh, Fernandez is one of the, the massive rookie gang that is getting some track time with Crutchlow and Pedrosa and everyone in the shakedown ahead of the main test. We got we got an early hint of how the rookies were coming together at Jerez last year, but um, I mean, Fernandez is the one with all the attention, but who do you think is looking most impressive from uh, from what we've seen so far? And who who's going to be heading out to Sepang with it with um quite a lot of work to do to get up to speed in time for the first race go for it Val. uh so the phrase was fernandez is getting all the attention but who do you think is looking the most impressive that but uh, doesn't belong there raul fernandez is looking the most impressive he looks the best in terms of pace so far looks the best in jerez looks again we're sort of there's a bit of a threat because if in tomorrow's shakedown Fabio Di Gian Antonio breaks the, the lap record or whatever, then I, I look like a chump. But I'm yeah, I'm gonna take the risk. Raul looks really good. He looks really good on the bike. Remy Gardner also looks really good, but he's not been 100 percent fit properly on the bike yet. He's had the the ribs crack. Uh he's he's been racing with fractured ribs since I think Portimao last year and carrying through the postseason test. That's presumably healed healed now, but he has the the wrist, fractured wrist from training. So he's not going to be. We're not going to get a, a great idea of how close Remy is to to Raúl, or whether he's maybe even ahead on pure pace. Like we still, we're going to need a bit of time to to get a any good, any sort of good read on that. Um, the other ones, Digia looked really good in Jerez. So far from shakedown, it's hard to tell. It hasn't really run enough to to be able to judge. Bazeki looked a bit shaky in Jerez, but you look level with Digia here and he's you know obviously both really good riders so not expecting them to remain off the pace for very long and uh, Darren Binder looked really good to start the shakedown a lot a lot stronger than he looked in Jerez which is encouraging we, we've heard a lot from from Darren these past few days obviously there was the Patronus launch and there was a designated media session and not Patronus foul yeah, oh that's boy, quite, that's quite right. Yikes. Yikes. That's going to take a while to get out of the system. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with you, RNF Racing. We've heard from Darren Binder during the designated with you, RNF Racing media session. And what he said was that, you know, he reiterated the, the I think, reasonably widely held belief that a bigger bike will suit him better. Um, he's, he's looking okay. It's, it's still, you know, we have to see him over a longer day compared to more riders but you know his the, the the part that i found interesting so interesting that it it came out as its own basically article on the race is where uh you know i sort of prodded him with examples of obviously jack miller but also guys like mir and vinales who did one season the moto 2 and then went straight into moto gp and were not hindered at all by their relative lack of moto 2 experience compared to other guys but the guy he actually brought up was raul fernandez uh, as a as a reference, as a point of inspiration, he said because Raul was not the hardest thing in Moto Three. He only really came on strong towards the end of his second season, and then in Moto Two, he was basically the class's finest rookie, rivaled only by by Mark 
It was incredible in Moto2. And Raul says it's because he's a big boy and needs big bikes. Darren is also a big boy. They are very similar in, in dimensions. Darren is slightly uh, slightly shorter, but they weigh the same, according to MotoGP.com. So he might as well go better on, on this rookie-friendly, bigger Yamaha than he did in Moto3. But what his ceiling is, I don't know. We'll see. I, honestly, I hope he goes decently well. There's no reason to... You know, there have been questions about his appointment, but he, first of all, he seems like a really nice bloke and just very laid back, chill, pleasant, personable, seems to give a lot of thought to what he says, despite his sort of laid back appearance. And, you know, secondly, just, it, it'd be good for MotoGP to have a, a young charger doing cool things on a, on a Yamaha. They don't expect him to be Fabio or, or Franco or Zarco, probably not even Fulger, but yeah, we'll see. Hope, hope he's, hope he's decent. The the one thing I will pick a hole in is his analogy of of Fernandez, um, simply because I think Fernandez only started winning at the end, but for me his career really really followed the kind of the Jorge Martin model where the first year was all about qualifying performance, and then the second year he backed it up with race wins as well, and and for me the the standout guys in Moto three are the ones who can do fast lap times alone, not necessarily the guys who get to the front of races at the end because the bikes make everything so competitive. You know, this is something we've talked about, written about in length. But I will say that so far in terms of, of being impressed looking at the timesheets from the test, Darren is the one that has impressed me the most because maybe because expectations were quite a bit lower for him. You know, we've, the, the, there is no secret that I've been quite critical about the decision to stick him in there, given his, his previous experience and his results. But he has impressed me so far. He's, he's, getting there um the question like you say val the question is where there is it's it's how far he can get um before he's thrown into a race and and things get a bit nastier but we'll we'll see we'll keep an eye on it out on him it's going to be interesting watching him um and and the good thing is that he is super honest when it comes to his debriefs he is thoughtful and, and careful in what he says but it's interesting so we'll be able to follow how he is doing with a a fair amount of honesty you wouldn't necessarily get from some of his rookie rivals, let's say. Obviously a very different situation on the other side of the RNF garage with uh, Andrea Davizioso. And actually at the launch last week, he was he got quite a lot of attention about his future and also why the team signed him in the first place. So, uh, Simon, do you, do you see... You, you compared Davizioso's plan for this year to uh, to Rossi's plan for last year... Now, Rossi had a very really disappointing season and isn't racing in MotoGP anymore, so that, that didn't seem the most promising analogy for, for where Dovi was going. Let, let, let's say uh, the, the words, not the actions, were the bit that I was trying to compare. Um, he, he's quite adamant that he's coming into this season to try and judge his own level. Um, and to you know, if he's having fun, he'll try and stay. If he's not having fun, he's out. Um, his team boss, Razlan Rosali, spoke to us and made it quite clear that he didn't really want him in the first place and that he, he basically referred to 2023 plans for that new team and Dovi just wasn't mentioned. It, it very much sounds like it's a, a one-year thing for now, but Dovi's got the ability to turn that around with some good results. The, the kind of, the problem is that good results for that team are very different from good results for any other satellite team because Raslan is still thinking like the guy that took Quadraro and Morbidelli to three wins apiece in a 14 round season in 2020. And that just isn't going to happen. Um, he's still talking about Dovi being a title contender, which Dovi isn't talking about. Um, he's talking about, you know, the, the sort of hopes and potentials he has for, for him. And it's just, it's, it's hard to see, but it also makes it quite hard to judge what Dovi would consider a good season. Like it's difficult to know what when he says he wants to have fun and do well. Is that sort of regular top six? Because that's maybe doable. Is it regular wrist wins? Because that's not going to happen this year. Um, so it's it's yeah, it's it's tricky to sort of put a pin on where his future plans lie. Really, I guess what I'm trying to. 
stretch out. Mr. Rosali, you know, spoke also today, and I think sort of a little bit backtracked on the on the title contention thing. It was I think more speaking of a top six placement for for Dolby now, which honestly that's that's it's 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 a task. It's not easy in modern MotoGP to place inside the the top six and the standings. I honestly I don't think that the Andrea Delicioso is a first of all he's bloody smart, such a smart guy clearly. But he's you know he's also obviously a very good rider. But even on towards the end of his Ducati stint with the with the Michelin rear tire change that hamstrung him a bit, I'm not sure he was a top six rider then. Like maybe on the very outskirts, he did score a lot of points. But in terms of like pace, he was really struggling with getting into qualifying. He basically it it seemed like he was really just maximizing every race because he was experienced and clever, but not because there was a ton of underlying pace there. Um, and he's been away for a bit, and obviously he's had the five races to get reacquainted with MotoGP and acquainted with a Yamaha M1, but. I don't know. Top six is it's it's a lot. It would be really really cool, especially because I think there's a bit of an imbalance coming to the MotoGP grid right now in that it's just preposterously young. Basically, Dovi's the oldest full time rider by a pretty pretty massive margin right now. Now that Valentino has gone, um, and everybody like everybody's talking about riders who are even younger still who are about to come in. Your Raul Fernandez as your Pedro Costa. It's it's. It's nice to have somebody of, of Dovey's experience and uh, CV around. If if he does break into the top six, hell, if he does, you know, if he wins races, it'll be a wonderful story. But I think we're still a fair bit away from that to proclaim it as a like as a as a target that you can really be comfortable setting. And I think I think Dovey knows that too. Going, but from from what he said, yeah, he isn't ruling it out by any stretch of the imagination. But we 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 don't know yet. I, to me, that just seems like absolute fantasy land. Mad prediction level. I top six or a title contention? Oh, both. Really. <laughs> Definitely title contention, okay. but top six yeah. still is like, mm, nah, that's uh, that's not going to happen. It's, it's a shame because Dolby at Ducati in his heyday was such a great story after after his career just hadn't taken off to all the end. And he becomes this superhero leading Ducati back to respectability and taking on Marquez toe-to-toe and, and fighting for championships to an extent. It, you know That was brilliant. But then it ended so unhappily, and I just I do worry a little bit that because the Ducati thing fell apart at the end and was quite fractious, he didn't get the kind of pleasant ending to a MotoGP career. So like flirting with Aprilia last year, then coming back to do this, it's almost like he wants a happy ending to his story. And I'm just worried that this is this is just going to be maybe not like that time Sete Gibernel turned up with that team that really shouldn't have been there, but that. that <laughs> You know, not to that extent embarrassing, but just not the final chapter that the Dovey tale needs. Are you are you saying Dovey will show up in Moto E in ten years' time for for <laughs> one off season to, to round it out? <laughs> That's a contentious issue for another podcast. Possibly. Uh, uh, well, no, I started wondering if will MotoGP <laughs> itself be electric in ten years' time, which is uh, going to be a, a, a massive argument. I think a lot yes, of listeners have very strong opinions on that that <laughs> are way stronger than any opinion I've ever held about anything. So we're going to steer clear of that for now. We'll, we'll do a double episode sometime of MotoGP going electric and Sepang 2015. Just bang it all into one. And lose all our subscribers and never come back. Um, let's round off by looking... We've got two teams left, actually. We need to touch on two teams with Dovey Links. One he raced for for a long time and, and one he uh, didn't actually ever ever do a race for. Let's look at uh, let's look at Ducati, first of all. So we talked about all these teams that need to throw parts at the bike and find power to get on terms with Ducati, but Ducati wouldn't have been sitting still either. So, Simon, what are you expecting when Ducati takes the track this weekend? The, the first whispers we've already had from the shakedown is that Gigi Dudelinia is the happiest man in Malaysia because he's made his bike faster, which is just what everyone else wants to hear. But then, of course, because it's exactly what everyone else doesn't want to hear, it's also exactly what Gigi will be telling everyone, even if it's not necessarily true. Uh, They finished the year last year with a superbly good bike. They sounded even happier with it at testing. Uh, It's going to be a very small evolution of what they had previously. It's not going to be anything particularly wild. And I fully expect... Gigi to just have you know we're gonna have like 
solid wheels and wings off a 747 and a rear seat unit that whenever someone crashes, candy spills out like a pinata just to mess with the other teams. Um, Cause that's, he's so good at it. And I genuinely, I think whatever he's saying in the first day of shakedown testing or bikes even faster, he's just doing it to get it. Like he's doing that so that Fabio Quattararo gets on a 14 hour flight thinking, fuck that it, it's, it's all mind games with him. Um, and, and this is the first year really that they've had, real flex to do it because the bike is so good so yeah i i think it's it's going to be really hard actually to gauge where the ducati really is probably until like round three or four because we start the season off at qatar where they're expected to go really well and then we go to a brand new circuit in mandalika and then we have the slightly weird texas and argentina doubleheader it's going to be like Jerez before we really know if that bike's a a genuine title contender, I think. Um, it's not something we're going to learn in the next few days. What's the last time we went into a MotoGP season with Ducati as the consensus title favorite? Is it? Is it 2008? 2008. Is it never? Yeah, uh, I think yeah. it's 2008 yeah, or 2008, never. I'm sure. Which like, we've definitely not been here in the in the recent MotoGP times. No. Um, honestly, for me, it, it comes down to like. I think I I know what I need to know about the Ducati because it goes well everywhere. That's just that's the kind of bike it is now. It is no longer uh, well. Phillip Island we haven't seen. I see Simon. I see Simon. Yeah, we we, yeah. we haven't. Yeah, we haven't seen it go at all at some of the tracks yeah. where it traditionally went badly. No, that's, that's fair enough. But the 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 running last year was was very very impressive, and I think more than any sort of developments or anything like that. Like, of course they will have worked on the bike, but more than that, I think it's the, 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 the sort of, they have a lot of insurance in their lineup. If you like, there are really a lot of riders who can go very fast and who have already proven themselves. And it's just all of them. It's not just that they're all very fast because all the riders in MotoGP are very fast and have proven themselves for, at one point or another, but with Ducati, it's all riders who have shown themselves to be capable on, on that exact bike. And if there's something off with one of them, if one of them's a bit injured, if one of them's getting confused by the tire, they have others to lean on. And over, over course of a, of a long season, that to me strikes like the, strikes me like the really big advantage. They will be more built to weather individual dips I feel there's just such such a stacked lineup. It's you know, apart from Pecco, who obviously is is the golden boy right now and who looked amazing last year. Uh, obviously, don't count out Jack. Uh, Jorge Martin had a phenomenal rookie season, so I think we'd be foolish to write him off out of title contention. And then there's you know there's the the sort of long shots, but still shots of Johan and Anaya, and all of those guys are going to be an obnoxious constant presence in Q2. I am I am absolutely sure of it because this is a really good qualifying bike. Um yeah, that's just, you know, the the depth is is what I really see. I know that MotoGP titles in in the modern time aren't really won by depth. Uh obviously Marquez hasn't won his titles through depth of other Honda riders. He's done it by himself basically. Uh Fabio Quartararo hasn't really leaned on the other Yamaha guys. But I think I think this year it might genuinely make quite a big difference. So I was just going to throw out that there's there's eight Ducati riders in the grid. I can realistically see four of them winning races. I can realistically see six of them qualifying on pole position, and I can realistically see seven of them finishing the podium, maybe eight. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's the sheer the sheer volume. You know, these other teams haven't had the chance to rely on strength and depth because they've got two factory riders and, and and a satellite team that may not be on the same level. But Ducati is just yeah, you know, it's it's taking up a th- a third of the grid, and it has very few weak links in its lineup. But you know, at the same time, like you say, with um, the things that Delinia would throw at that bike, most of the tech innovations of the last few years have been first seen on a Ducati. And yet, as we also said, Ducati hasn't been title favourite for ages, and it hasn't won a title for ages either. So, for all that innovation and everything else that's been good about Ducati, it's still not actually won anything. So. What was what's been missing there, and and will that be in place this season? A, a lot of their innovation comes 
as technical workarounds to fix fundamental flaws with the bike. Because the bike is low and fast and powerful, that means everything else is a compromise. Nothing else works quite as well. So that's why they're doing things like the right height adjustment device or the wings. It's all to help manage the power from that engine. Um, and because of that, you know, when you look at the championship, the bikes that win well, with the exception of Mark Marquez, um, the bikes that do well are the best balanced bikes. There's a reason that the Suzuki is there. There's a reason that the Yamaha is the bike that any rookie can get on and go immediately fast on. It's because they're well-balanced machines. Um, even the Aprilia, to, to a slightly lesser extent, has some of that characteristic to it of being quite comfortable. Um, but Ducati isn't. All of their all of their technical innovations are ways to tame the beast. Um, I, and I think what they've got right now is probably a rider package that are quite good at that um, and who are sort of tailored to it. Miller is, you know, very much a Ducati rider. Bagnaia is only ever been a Ducati rider. Martin made the decision to become a Ducati rider for that reason because he thought he was up to the challenge. Um, that's all working quite well. So... So visual aid, everyone. Val has just uh, seen Jorge Martin tweet a picture of himself, basically looking like he's half naked, covered in oil or sweat, preparing for the season, and he's just waved that in front of the screen in front of us. I saw that pop up on a social media feed, and thought, I'm not going to interrupt the podcast by saying Jorge Martin's doing some kind of porn shoot, but Val's just waded straight in. <laughs> Isn't it the podcast tradition by now, ever since uh, Simon's Aleish uh, thing? <laughs> yes, I think it is. <laughs> I <mean laughs> but uh, you're right. Martin does look determined in that picture, Val, definitely. Martin looks determined in real life as well. I, every time you meet him, th there's an intensity about the guy that, that says something about his aspirations in life. And they're not to win a world championship; they're to destroy everyone else on the way to it. You know, he's he, there, there's he's a, such a good guy, but there's a real there's a passion there. Um, there's something a little bit different about him. There's something deeply terrifying about this photo, and I, I'm not entirely sure what it is. I can't stop looking I, at it. I the the, <laughs> the the left shoulder. It is so massive. It is absolutely enormous. It's freaking me out. It's it's quite late at night in Moscow now with the time we're recording this. And Val's just looking at that picture late at night, just condemned himself to nightmares. It's like a kind of midnight cheese feast. It's uh, it's going to give me very bad dreams. Uh, I I would My money is still on Jorge Martin being Ducati's next world champion, whether that is this year on the Pramac bike against all odds or just blitzing straight into the works team and doing it. Um, uh, I'm expecting Simon to now get to kind of top this Alicia Spargo picture out just to kind of... Fact, <laughs> to, just to, to highlight the that Alicia's looking good going into the season <laughs> <laughs> indeed moving on to Aprilia just to finish off because they're the last team we haven't talked about you know every, every year until last year we were looking at testing to see if Aprilia was going to just even find some dignity pretty much massively different situation there this year but um, what are we expecting to have been able to do over, over the winter and what are, you, what are you looking for from them this weekend uh, I, I really want Aprilia to be quite conservative this week They've kind of got to where they need to get to. They've got the two top riders. They've got the bike that's capable of finishing on the podium. And it kind of needs to be baby steps from here on, I think, to turn all of that into, you know, the the final details to make it a race winner, to make it a consistent race winner and to make it a title contender. Um, they're, they're not going to do that by taking the huge risks they've taken over the past few years to jump. Um, those risks paid off, like chapeau to them for it. But it's almost... You don't want to do what Suzuki did in 2017 now. You don't want to get super close to being there and then choose the wrong engine and mess the whole thing up. So, uh, yeah, I, I think they'll bring a bike that's kind of similar-ish to last year's. They'll bolt one new part on at the time. They'll have Lorenzo Salvadori try everything before anything gets to the factory riders instead of just sending them out in something completely wild. Um, and, and I think the end result will be an Aprilia that's not too far away, actually. Definitely a lot closer to the front than a lot of people expect, maybe. And Val, the other question around Aprilia as well is we've we've seen half a season of Maverick Vinales there, but that was just the rehearsal, really, wasn't it? Now we're actually going to see what he can do on an Aprilia. So I, I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what his mood is like this weekend. Well, I mean, he's testing, so he's going to be the happiest man ever. 
<laughs> I, I, I joke. I, Five days. Maverick, I don't think actually like enjoys testing that much. Like he he goes really quick and doesn't. He gets annoyed about the fact that he's so quick in testing and it doesn't doesn't quite convert. Uh, it's just yeah. It's I don't I don't see much in the way of tension though because. No, he's 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 fallen from such heights, and it it was such it's not it was not a sharp fall, it was a long, four year descent down a bunch of a bunch of steps that were relatively on a level plane, but still hurt with each one of them. Basically, that analogy made no sense, but yeah, whatever. But it makes sense if you then end it that he jumped the final six steps backwards last yeah. August and landed <laughs> on his head, but. He knows that we're. I mean, he's already started the Prilia, but he, you know, he knows that the Yamaha twenty seventeen start isn't isn't on the cards. He's not winning the first two races and then the fifth one or whichever one it was, the fifth or sixth. Um, I think he's just, you know, he's going to be happy to be along for the ride and have some stability that also comes with outside of the weight of expectations. I, I'm not even sure that the bike needs to be all that good for Maverick to recommit because remember the Yamaha wasn't all that good when he would recommit to it. Like, it wasn't spectacular. Aprilia would obviously still quite like to be at that level, at least. But even if it's not, I think just a year or two of stable, stably chipping away at it while people aren't constantly asking why you're not winning, it'll do him a lot of good. Because, you know, he's a, obviously a super, super talented bloke who I think will be a lot of fun on the RSGP sooner rather than later. I think he's going to be in a good mood this weekend. He's been on a good mood, basically in a good mood at Aprilia. Clearly, it it, it suits him. I think I think he's going to use it in for a, for a fun season. Just don't know how much it'll yield in terms of actual tangible great results. We'll see. I'd, I'd love it. I'd love it for him to get the happy ending that Dovi is searching for. I think Vignola is working out well at Aprilia, getting some practice, maybe even getting an Aprilia win. That would be that would be gloriously romantic, wouldn't it? That'd, I'm keen for that. So we're going to finish off with Larry one-word predictions. So let's start with the top end of the grid. Who is going to come out of testing fastest on one lap pace? Simon? Bagnaya. Val? Bagnaya. And who is going to be in that puzzled, grumpy position that KTM was this time 12 months ago? Who is going to actually come away from these two weeks just confused and and grumpy? Simon? Miller. Ooh. Val? Me. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, I don't see any reason to disagree with that. We've got a busy month coming up. So, speaking of that busy month, um, you can obviously keep up with everything that's happening in MotoGP testing on therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen between the and race. This weekend, Simon is out there, then going straight to Mandalika. Val and myself and our colleague Josh will be at this end making sense of everything as well. Um, we'll be back on the Race MotoGP podcast middle of next week to talk about how Sepang went and what, uh, what we're expecting from Mandalika. Uh, obviously as well we're midway through a season of bring back v10s our retro f1 podcast formula e's just started i think i'm being supply teacher on the formula e podcast to make up for someone being absent on that tomorrow as well and uh what am i missing oh yeah f1 podcast f1 launches f1 testing will be f1 podcasting almost every day of the week pretty much through february i think thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon